Welcome back to The Corbett Report. Welcome back. I'm James Corbett of CorbettReport.com. And if I've done my math correctly, today should be the 18th of February 2023 in the United States, at least when I post this video. And if it is, then that is an important date because tomorrow will be the date that all the Corbett Reporteers in the U.S. and anyone else who can make it will be flocking to Washington for the Rage Against the War Machine event, right? And if you don't know about the Rage Against the War Machine event, of course, you can listen to my recent conversation with uh, Nicholas Brenna and Angela McArdle on Solutions Watch about Rage Against the War Machine, or you could go directly to rageagainstwar.com, where you can find more information about that rally, what is happening, uh, who is speaking, why you should be out there in the first place, but hopefully my audience understands why it is important to be resisting the NATO war machine. I would assume, by this point. But I thought it would be particularly appropriate to arm my listeners, my peaceful listeners, uh, with the most important ammunition in the Infowar, knowledge, facts, information. And on that note, of course, uh, this flashback that we're going to watch today is incredibly appropriate. It is a conversation that I conducted in 2015 with Rick Rosov, then of Stop NATO International. And if you don't know about Rick Rosoff, you could start by, of course, typing Rosoff into the search bar on CorporateReport.com, and you'll see some of the many, many conversations that we had uh, back at that time when I believe he was more active um, and Stop NATO International was still functioning. I believe Stop NATO International itself has been discontinued, but Rick Rosoff is continuing to at least follow the, uh, the information and news about NATO on seemingly a daily basis at his new blog, Antebellum, which I will be linking up in the show notes so you can go check that out. It seems like a very, very uh, thorough uh, uh, keeping up to date of all of the latest information about NATO and its activities. Uh, Rick Rosoff also has a literary selections blog for Peace Against War, which is a collection of anti-war writings, poetry and prose and others, um, sometimes going back thousands of years. A very, very interesting blog that I will draw your attention to. Again, I will link that up in the show notes. It's at rickrosoff.wordpress.com. But back in 2015, obviously in the wake of Crimea and the coup that had taken place in Ukraine and all of that rigmarole, uh, Rick Rosoff was on the corporate report to boldly predict that Ukraine war is inevitable. Well, sadly, he was exactly right with that prediction. Maybe it didn't take the most accurate crystal ball to be able to see that, but at any rate, Rick Rosoff was talking about it, was warning about it at the time, and as you will listen in this conversation, it is not a happy and optimistic conversation, but as Rick Rosoff says, it's better to know the uncomfortable truth than to be told a comfortable lie. So, um, some, it's a very deep conversation. I think you'll get a lot out of it, even if you have been following what's been going on in the Ukraine for the last several years. Uh, I think this is a good history lesson because it makes a point which I was attempting to articulate back at the start of this current round of uh, of military interventionism back last year when I wrote, wrote my Ukraine crisis, what you need to know article. The clock didn't start in February of 2022. The clock didn't even start in 2014. It didn't start in 1991 with the collapse of the Soviet empire and The clock has been running for many, many, many hundreds of years, and there's a lot of water under the bridge between Ukraine and Russia and 
the various permutations, geographical and political and otherwise, that it has taken over the years. So there's a lot to take into consideration. But at any rate, this will get you up to speed on what was going on in that time frame in 2015 and why it was obvious at that time that NATO was going to continue to push this until some sort of military response came from the Russian side. All of that is to say that I am thoroughly anti-war, and I, I am not on board with yay, yay, Putin standing up to NATO, yay, roll in the tanks, let's kill people. That's going to be the answer to this. It certainly isn't, even strategically, even from a strategic point of view, it is quite stupid on Putin's part, because it, it absolutely is the big shot in the arm that NATO needed and is using to start constructing an even larger empire. Uh, if you want more details on, oh, but what could Putin have possibly done other than roll in the tanks and start invading? Uh, well, there's a conversation that I will direct your attention to very recently between Rage Against the War Machine speaker Scott Horton and Rage Against the War Machine speaker David Swanson on Scott Horton's podcast recently on what Russia could have done instead of invading Ukraine, which I did post in my uh, subscriber newsletter uh, a few weeks ago, so I hope you're familiar with that conversation. But they make some very good points in there that military intervention was not, certainly not the only option and definitely not the best option. Um, anyway, that being said, that's just the context for this conversation that is obviously extremely relevant. And I want to give the hat tip to Corbett Report member Chatters, who left a comment on this post a couple of weeks ago to say, fascinating to review this again now. And you're exactly right, Chatters. And thank you for bringing this particular conversation to my attention, because after having done this work for 16 years now, there's all sorts of gems like this in the archives that I don't even remember exist. So sometimes I need people to remind me what exists in my own archives. So thank you, Chatters, for that. And Brock West, video editor extraordinaire, has visualized this for your viewing pleasure. Um, but right now, let's get straight into it. My conversation from 2015 with Rick Rozov on why Ukraine war with NATO against Russia is inevitable. Welcome, friends. James Corbett here, CorbettReport.com. Today is the 12th of February, 2014, sorry, 2015, across the dateline here in Japan. Still the 11th of February back in the United States, where I am very happy to be joined on the line once again by our old friend Rick Rozoff of Stop NATO International at rickrozoff.wordpress.com, someone who I hope you will already be familiar with. And if not, please check out the Stop NATO website and also please check out our previous conversations. He is a wealth of knowledge geopolitically, and he is a powerful voice in the anti-war movement. So, Rick Rozoff, thank you very much for taking the time to talk with us today. Thank you once again, James, for having me. I think there's no more vital time uh, or issue, uh, a time to be discussing it, or a vital issue than the Ukrainian crisis uh, and all it portends for global developments. Well, Rick Rozoff, we are right in the middle of a news cycle right now that involves such developing stories as the ongoing attempts to negotiate a ceasefire between uh, Ukraine and, and the internal Ukrainian opposition, between the leaders of Russia, Ukraine, France, and Germany that's ongoing right now in Belarus, and so there will be some results from that probably by the time most people are catching this conversation. We've also seen other developments that uh, have a role to play in what's happening right now, for example, on the front page of 
stop NATO International right now. You have U.S. Congress readies $1 billion for war in Ukraine. Also, U.S. deploys more warplanes in expanding anti-Russian campaign. We have uh, some other interesting things making headlines, like the recent telephone call between Obama and Putin that uh, occurred on Tuesday, in which Obama apparently warned Putin that there will be consequences if Putin does not grasp the opportunity for diplomatic resolution of this Ukrainian crisis this week. And of course, we also have the downright absurd, like the recently released Pentagon report stating that Pe- uh, Putin actually has Asperger's. No word yet on what uh, conco- what uh, what uh, particular mental ailments Obama has, but uh, I think we can all speculate. But in this mix of ongoing events, there is obviously a lot to bite off and chew. And as I say, a lot of this will be decided in the time between the time we record this and the time this interview is released. So let's set the scope and the parameter for for what's actually happening right now in the context of this uh, of this ongoing NATO aggression against Russia and uh, bumping up against Russia. How did this eventuate, and uh, what are what are the things that people need to know that they probably do not about the uh, the way this conflict is taking shape? This month marks a, a year exactly the anniversary of the overthrow of the. Uh, however, um, you know, unlikable in other respects, nevertheless, uh, legally elected and internationally recognized government of then President Viktor Yanukovych. It was in February of 2014, of course, that with the act of connivance with the United States, and not only so-called non-governmental organizations, what I prefer to refer to as NNGOs, non-non-governmental organizations, that is front groups of the U.S. State Department, Central Intelligence Agency, uh, not only were they working avidly, um, uh, overtime, uh, but the likes of John McCain, who now again is uh, you know in charge of international affairs and other d- chief committees in the in the Senate, with his Republican Party having regained control of that House of the U.S. Congress, and of course the infamous uh, Victoria Nuland, uh, State Department's Under Secretary of State for European Eurasian Affairs, you know mingling amongst the protesters in Maidan Square and in, in the Ukrainian capital of Kiev, you know handing out pastries and uh, probably dollars and cell phones. I mean, who knows what was distributed uh, through the U.S. Embassy and through the good offices of Jeffrey Pyatt, who was clearly uh, the coup uh, meister, if you will, you know, the master of the the coup d'etat that occurred a year ago. So, you know, that by way of background. Immediately thereafter, the very man that in the intercepted or leaked um, a phone conversation with Victoria Nuland to Jeffrey Pyatt, wherein she uh, you know, used an obscenity in reference to the European Union, which, as I've stated re- uh, repeatedly, is the least offensive part of that conversation. You know, handpicked the composition of a post-coup Ukrainian junta, mentioning particularly that Arseniy Yatsenyuk would be head of government, which he is. He's prime minister and has been in the interim. Uh, so that uh, what uh, almost immediately uh, uh, succeeded that was the uh, launching of a full-fledged war. And uh, I know a lot of people like to pull punches or like to uh, make abstract or abstruse commentary on issues as though you know they're writing for the history books. Uh, that's not the sort of person I am, and I have no desire to, uh, you know, promote my own sagacity, you know, by, by speaking about abstract issues. The long and short of it is, starting on April the 15th of last year, the U.S. and NATO supported puppet regime in, in Kiev, that of Petro Poroshenko, lost, launched a series of uh, military, launched, uh, military campaign, in fact a war, which they uh, referred to as an anti-terrorist operation, ATO, in the eastern part of the country, particularly in the Donbass region. It is now, as of today, a 302 days old, that is, we're coming up on another anniversary, almost a year, of war in Europe. 
And the, the world has done a remarkable job, a despicable, but a remarkable job at ignoring this, or to the extent it's paid any attention at all to you downplay the significance of it. Uh, today, for example, English language Ukrainian government press uh, agents and uh, organs, you know, have announced rather routinely that yesterday in, in the uh, Donbas region, 19 Ukrainian government soldiers were killed, 78 wounded. That is almost 100 uh, casualties in one day. So the fighting in the east has reached an unprecedented level of intensi intensity and fatality, and it's clear it cannot go on uh, like this much longer before somebody intervening, and I mean intervening militarily. What is your take then on the on the ongoing negotiations for a ceasefire? Do you believe this is a delaying tactic? Is there an actual attempt being made to to come to some sort of resolution here? It is the most cynical of charades, and the fact that the Russian president would participate in them while his own country is, you know, has a war on its border, uh, to go through this, uh, you know, pretense of anything being resolved is is a black mark against him, in my estimate. I don't know why he's humoring the likes, you know, to shake hands with a murderer like uh, Petroshenko, uh, you know, for for the head of state of a legitimate country is is a not only condescending, it's it's uh, uh, cheapening the role of the uh, Russian government and the president of the country, in my estimate to have any dealings with uh, Poroshenko whatsoever. Well, this obviously um, raises the greater question of NATO versus Russian military tensions and the, the sort of greater context of this. Is there uh, some sense in which this is the flashpoint for that, that conflict to occur? Do you expect that this, this is going to, uh, to result in some sort of outright military aggression, or is this a proxy war that's being fought right now? It's a one-sided war. I mean, I'll be perfectly blunt and candid about this. It is a one-sided war being waged by the U.S. and NATO uh, surrogate uh, forces in Kiev, which, again, as I mentioned, have been fighting a war against its own people, the people of Ukraine, or the eastern Ukraine, for 302 days. This war has not only been, you know, in some cases, as in Donetsk and Lugansk, you know, uh, maybe a score of miles uh, from the Russian border. In many cases, the war is waging right on the Russian border and across into Russian territory. There have been incidents where the Ukrainian, Ukrainian government military forces have shelled uh, uh, targets inside Russia, killed at least one Russian civilian, have attacked and destroyed Russian checkpoints and so forth with com complete impunity. With complete impunity. That is, while the U.S. and NATO, it, and today's news is, if you're, I, I hope you get this on the air as soon as possible, is that the, uh, the commander of U.S. Army Europe, G General Benjamin Hodges, was in Kiev a couple of weeks ago, at which point he supposedly was distributing medals to not only Ukrainian government forces, but to the likes of the Pravi sector, that is the right sector-led Azov battalion of neo-fascist militia, and, and uh, you know, bestowing medals on them. He is quoted today as saying the U.S. is prepared to supply military weaponry uh, to exactly the fighting forces in eastern uh, Donbass, that is exactly to the aggressors in eastern uh, Ukraine, and that, uh, you know, with the uh, naked uh, participation, the fact that the U.S. and NATO have entered this war as co-belligerents, by supplying military forces, by training uh, uh, Ukrainian government forces and so forth, and that there seems to be uh, no uh, countermeasures taken by Russia is, is a signal to me of something extremely dangerous going on, which is to say that, you know, had it reached a military stalemate... Um, and had uh, you know Russia let it be known that certain steps would not be tolerated, I believe I, I'm certain this uh, catastrophe would never have reached to the dimensions it has. It's the very fact that Russia has permitted the U.S. and NATO to act pre precisely as they've chosen to in Ukraine that has led to this crisis right now, which I am convinced is irreversible. 
And I am convinced that the, the side that is going to intervene militarily at this point is the United States and NATO, and you can count on it happening in the near future. Well, absolutely all of the signs are tending in that direction, but that's an intriguing um, analysis because it, it seems to... Are you, are you asserting Russian complicity in what's happening? Complicity or capitulation, you take your choice. <laughs> Uh, once again, I think one of the most interesting and worrying parts of this, of course, is what's happening right now to the Ukrainian people. And you have posted up as the top story as we speak on Stop NATO at rickrosoff.wordpress.com. Ukrainian junta ready to declare martial law in 302-day war. Just another inevitable sign of the uh, the erosion of any uh, idea of civil society in Ukraine as a result of this uh, this aggression that's being waged right now. Tell us about this and how this is going to affect the Ukrainian people. Yeah, you know, I invite people to read uh, the English language Ukrainian uh, government or pro-government uh, websites like Interfax Ukraine, Ukraine Forum, UNIAN, uh, National Radio Company of Ukraine. These are all available in English. You know, it's not a matter of speculating about what the uh, the regime is doing. They're quite open about it. Uh, today, UNIAN, uh, it's an acronym, uh, one of the, the major pro-government, if not government, uh, media sources announced again, it had been uh, um, mentioned or bruited, uh, a couple of days ago that Poroshenko has stated quite openly that if the fighting continues in the eastern part of the country, in the Donbass region, he is prepared to um, institute a martial law throughout the country, the entirety of the country, not just the affected areas. Uh, similarly, this is the second time he's made a statement to this effect in the last 72 hours or so. Similarly, a story in that, that same source, Union uh, mentioned a couple of days ago that the Ukrainian government is prepared to register for military purposes, perhaps conscript all women between the ages of 20 and 50. So what you're looking at is, is something quite martial law, universal conscription, that's placing the entire country on a war fitting, footing, and it suggests that, you know, contrary to the assertions by the government, they're c conducting a so-called anti-terrorist operation in the East. In fact, they're, they're engaged in full-fledged civil war. Very disturbing indeed, although not surprising, as you say, to the people who are keeping their eye on the situation. So what is the actual game plan here? The, the Ukraine is being targeted, and presumably for a reason. It was not picked randomly. What is uh, NATO and the IMF and the EU and the other people with a stake in this conflict actually engaged in doing here? You know, those those of us, uh, Cassandras like ourselves, James, let's be honest about it, you know, who constantly warn about certain events or see t tendencies or trends emerging and try to point them out to people, oftentimes with, you know, very little response. Uh, I wrote an article five years ago suggesting the so-called Eastern Partnership Initiative of the European Union, and it uh, it was launched six years ago, uh, on the initiative of, uh, of primarily of Sweden and Poland, and Poland more than Sweden even, uh, the foreign ministers of which at that time were the former U.S. resident and, you know, no doubt U.S. operative Radek Sikorsky, who was foreign minister of Poland. He's now chief of their parliament. He was formerly a defense minister. He is, you know, uh, mooted uh, to become head of state at some point, prime minister if not president, uh, head of government, head of state. And Karl Bildt in Sweden, the foreign minister who is a notorious Russophobe and a, uh, you know, a virulent uh, NATO advocate. I don't know how many people in the world uh, realize that, how many people in Sweden realize that. But 
they uh, crafted a program called Eastern Partnership, which aimed at the economic and the military and the political and the ideological integration of those remaining former Soviet republics outside of Central Asia, excluding, of course, Russia. And they are, in fact, Belarus, Moldova, Ukraine, Armenia, Azerbaijan, and Georgia. And the plan was to wean them away from uh, former, uh, um, what, how would I put it, autonomous uh, uh, agent, uh, alliances or organizations in former Soviet space, like the Collective Security Treaty Organization, which is as close to a military bloc as exists within the uh, former Soviet Union. Uh, Belarus and Armenia are members of that uh, group, and they're targeted by the Eastern Partnership. And all six countries, excluding Georgia as of immediately after the Six-Day War with Russia in August of 2008, are members of the Commonwealth of Independent States, which is the closest equivalent, say, to the European Union that exists within the, the former Soviet Union. And that, you know, my article five years ago suggested, because I thought it was transparently obvious, that this was part of a plan to wean the other former Soviet republics away from Russia, to destroy any, uh, you know, post-Soviet formations, and to recruit uh, all uh, non-Russian former Soviet republics into the European Union and into NATO, at least excluding the five Central Asian republics, as they're not within the geographical purview of either the European Union or NATO, but, you know, in some other capacity through partnership programs. And having warned about that, when last Last uh, November, the crisis in Ukraine uh, erupted, and it erupted precisely because the uh, an association agreement, capital A's in both instances, uh, between the European Union and uh, Ukraine under the auspices of the Eastern Partnership had simply been deferred by the, by the Yanukovych government, which immediately uh, gave rise to, you know, the sort of color revolution scenario we're all too familiar with, where, you know, swarms or, um, you know, rent-a-mobs, whatever we want to call them, you know, of people, of young people who seem to have nothing else to do. They have no jobs, they don't go to school, but they seem to be, um, you know, with, with all the latest uh, telecommunication devices at their, um, at their disposal, you know, are out in Maiden Square trying to restage the Orange Revolution activities of the year 2000. 2004, and one thing led to another, as, as, uh, as we know, and uh, again, a year ago, the uh, internationally recognized government is overthrown in a violent uprising. Uh, the uh, interim government uh, uh, stipulated and essentially appointed by the U.S. State Department took power, and shortly thereafter, as we've talked about, launched military operations against its own citizens in the east of the country. I mean, that that was what we have to know, but we have to know that, this, as you're indicating, this was a um, long-planned uh, objective of uh, you know pulling Ukraine complete. I can't even say out of the Russian orbit. Had never been in the Russian orbit. I mean, Ukraine had never been a member of the Collective Security Treaty Organization, for example. You know, it had a fifteen hundred mile border with Russia and wasn't even a member of a you know post-Soviet security arrangement. Uh, it had been a member of several NATO initiatives, including permanent military uh, deployments in the uh, Indian Ocean and in the Mediterranean Sea. You're speaking militarily, though. You're, you're not suggesting that Ukraine was never in the economic orbit of Russia. Very little. I mean, it was a member of the Commonwealth of Independent States, as were uh, the 12 former uh, Soviet republics, excluding the three Baltic states. Um, so, you know, in that sense, I mean, that's a fairly loose affiliation. Of course, it will leave the Commonwealth of Independent States. Now, so, the objective I mentioned earlier uh, at the beginning of the description of the Eastern Partnership has been achieved. You know, that Ukraine has been re uh, wrenched out of uh, any, uh, you know, uh, economic or, or political uh, affiliations, uh, organizations with which Russia is also a member. That's, that's been accomplished. 
as you mentioned, an opposition uh, member of the Verkhodna Rada, the parliament in Ukraine, there's a video going, making the rounds now from um, Oleg Zarnov, where he talked last autumn, I think in October, November at the very latest, saying that the West, the U.S. and NATO, plans to overthrow the government in Ukraine and institute a civil war in the country. Now, I mean, uh, that is not a wild guess. I think he had his ear pretty close to the ground. He understood what the plan was, and, and indeed, precisely that has ensued. Well, you paint a very vivid and persuasive picture of the geopolitical machinations and the military aggression that has led us to this point. But the question obviously becomes, how do we actually effectively oppose this militarization, this military aggression, and support the people of Ukraine without giving in to the logic which would say that what we need is Russian military to, to be the anti-aggressors and then, you know, just supporting the war machine itself, which obviously relies on opposition um, military opposition to to keep perpetuating itself. How do we actually insert ourselves in a fruitful way to stop this militarization? You know, I wish I had a handy prescription for that, and if I did, I think it would be outdated uh, the very moment I enunciated it. That is to say, that events are moving at such a rapid pace, they appear to be so irreversible. Uh, we have to keep in mind that we now have an um, airtight, hermetically sealed political system in the United States, particularly as it affects foreign policy issues, where there is absolute unanimity are almost such in both houses of the U.S. Congress. You know, 535 representatives in the House of Lords and the House of Commons. You can count on them voting unanimously to support any act of military aggression internationally, particularly against Russia. We've seen the Democratic Progressive Caucus, for example, vote to a person for the uh, recent legislation that was basically a, a declaration, uh, how would I put it, a declaration of war against Russia to be, uh, you know, filed away in one's uh, jacket pocket, you know, for use as, as needed. So that we're not, you know, we the, the decades old and unfortunately no longer operative, um, you know, remedies like writing or calling your congressman, I think, can be safely dismissed at this point. Uh, hoping, as you know, certain people, whether with good intentions or otherwise, uh, including many in the Kremlin, that uh, the Ukrainian crisis would create a fissure uh, between the U.S. and its European allies is transparently not materialized, and I would argue could not and will not be. You know, there will never be such uh, open divisions until, you know, the NATO is, is uh, disestablished, is, is abolished. And I might add people who are enthusiastic about the recent change in the, in the Greek government uh, might look at the fact that government has pledged fealty to both the European Union and NATO. That's very true. And again, it leaves us in a position of being able to do almost nothing whatsoever, except watch as horrified onlookers as this continues, which is a very bleak way to end this conversation. <laughs> You know, you're better the bitter truth than, uh, you know, um, narcotizing people with uh, pleasant illusions, you know, truthfully. And and I think of nothing else, you know, we may not be able to inspire people to go out and do heaven knows what right now, but we may be able to, uh, you know, very seriously instill in people uh, the gravity of the situation we're confronting right now. I can't think of anything more grave. Uh, I don't want to raise this, but I, I certainly know that even the likes of, you know, people not given to inflammatory and certainly not to anti-Western rhetoric like Mikhail Gore, Gorbachev has more than once raised the specter of the possibility of nuclear war between U.S. and Russia over Ukraine. Rick Rosoff, I thank you for your time, and I look forward to talking to you again as these developments uh, continue to unfold. Thank you, James.